Welcome to Cooper Talk. I'm your host, Steve Cooper. And remember, I'm only as hip as my guest. And I have to tell you, I, I got out of the house today and I forgot to put my Fitbit on. And it sounds stupid, but I've been trying to be really health conscious and exercising. I try to get those 10,000 steps. And I pull up to the studio and I texted Joanne. I'm like, oh my God, I forgot my Fitbit. And it sounds so stupid, but it's just, you get so addicted to this. And I have people from back east who put me in these challenges. And because you're competitive, you want to win. And I'm always sitting there. And, and now, especially because they have so much snow i'm like i i have to beat them because i can walk around in the sunshine they're sitting there in the snow they're gonna stay inside so i just i felt naked i usually clip it right on my jeans and as soon as i was walking to come in the studio i crossed the street and i did not have it and i just i felt awful so i told joanne we have actually we have a game show audition later today but i said before we go i have to stop i have to come upstairs and get my fitbit because i don't want to lose the steps so I'm going crazy, people. I'm actually getting very, very healthy now. Anyway, enough about that. We have a great show. I'm very, I'm very happy to have our guest today. It's Ileana Douglas. How you doing? Hi, thank you. I'm glad to be here. Now, are, are you are you an exerciser? Do you get into that? I know you're a vegetarian, but do you get into the exercising? I do uh, uh, exercise a lot. I go to dance class. I ride my bike quite a bit. Okay. Um, I had a, uh, let's just talk about my injuries. <laughs> I had a, had a shoulder injury. Now I'm going to be like my, I'm going to become my grandmother now. I had a shoulder injury, which is, uh, incapacitated me a little bit, but basically I, I, I like to ride bikes a lot and go to dance class. That's my major, my, my major exercise. And I eat well and have a lot of olive oil. I'll see olive oil is the best. I, my, my girlfriend's Italian and I it's eat, like, I eat pretty well. That's good. I now, think. now, did you always dance from a, as when you were a kid or I mean, I, yes, uh, nobody wanted me. <laughs> I mean, just on my own I did. And then, um, and then I had some training when I moved to New York as a, and I did musical theater too when I was a kid. So, uh, very early on I learned, uh, how to dance from watching Fred Astaire on television. Then I actually got some, uh, training doing musical theater and uh, and then when I went to to acting school in New York, yeah, we had dance uh, in in school like four, five days a week actually, five days a week. And then I took class after that. And then I didn't do it for years and years. And then I recently got got back into it, at, uh, taking class at the Edge, which is a fantastic dance place for anybody who wants to take class. Now. You grew up, when you were growing up, at what age did you know you wanted to act? I mean, everyone says different things. Like, I mean, did you know as a little kid you wanted to be an actress? Well, this actor? is, you know, it's an interesting question because uh, I just finished writing a book, which is called, uh, we, I can come back and talk about that, called I Blame Dennis Hopper. And uh, it's basically about, you know, it's stories about my life, which I sort of consider inside and outside Hollywood. Um, you know, I grew I, I, I grew up with my grandfather, you know, knowing my grandfather was Melvin Douglas and being an actor. But then also, you know, kind of wanting to be, I was I was on sets when I was a little kid watching him. But then I also, you know, liked the idea of being a writer and an observer. And those two parts of me have always kind of existed. I'm, I'm just as comfortable sometimes. All my early jobs, which I write about in the book, coincidentally enough, working in film publicity, working in hotels, they were really more behind the scenes and assisting you know directors when i when i worked in uh, in publicity and i was very comfortable with that i i i think i think i was one of those people who yes yeah, secretly wanted to be an actor but would have been just as comfortable behind the scenes uh working with actors because i admire them so much and i admire writing about them and so W that's kind of what I do now also in working with Turner Classic Movies is that I'm able to uh, interview people like Richard Dreyfus or Jerry Lewis that I've actually worked with and right. I think that that gives me a somewhat of a different perspective than somebody who writes about movies exclusively like a Roger Ebert or Pauline Kael who I admire you know their writing so much but when you work with someone you have a different insight so that's a very long question too I'm still it's a complex thing about you know whether it's more fun to act or whether it's more fun to write and direct i find them equally exciting well what's crazy i mean for me it's like as a kid you know i grew up you know, my my grandfather we'd go and you know we'd go to this house in northeast philadelphia and he'd smoke a cigar and you know we there was no tv i had to go in the kitchen and watch football but for you it must have been just different because you know we all look at it as our grandfather it's our, our grandfather you know it's not our, our dad but it's our grandfather and it's just certain you know i was the youngest so it's always like oh, i'm the little the baby yes. 
Yes, me too. Me and too. when it must be weird though for you because your grandfather was such a big star, it must mm-hmm. have been odd because for you, he's your grandfather, but to everybody else, he's. A, a, a star. I mean, would that be weird when you would go out with him in public? I mean, did people? No, there- it was amazing. I mean, that's what I write about in my book. It was like you know, every my impression growing up was just you know, if we went out to dinner, we got huge portions. If we went to the candy store, we got free things. It was like you know, it was it it was everyone was so nice to us. I, it was to me, it was like this is fantastic, you know. And uh, so, of course, who wouldn't want to have that kind of an experience? I tell a story in the book about like, you know, years later being in acting school and going to Sardi's because I was bragging to everyone about which what huge portions they give you, you know, and meanwhile, I find out, oh, those were the Melvin Douglas size, really large portions. When I go in, uh, you know, it's the same thing, like, you know, going to Zabar's, uh, like, I no longer had the, you can pick whatever you want, and, you know, we'll just bring it up to the apartment, Uh, you know, so that's that's when I really noticed the difference when I was like a poor, starving actress myself living in New York. It is really crazy. I used to wait tables at Planet Hollywood in Beverly Hills. And the people who didn't need to get comped would come in and they give them a leather jacket and they give you this, this. And then yes. there's some tourists who like are just in there going, oh my God, you know, we just love this place. Can you buy your waiter shirt? And you're like, these are the people we should give this stuff to because they actually appreciate it. Yes. It always, I find though, it always evens out for all the, you know, free gift baskets and free things I've gotten which have been incredible there's there is a darker downside where you know you have evil assistants or you you're, you you pay one way or another right. in the end <laughs> Being a celebrity is like, it's a double-edged sword. You get a lot of great stuff, and then, unfortunately, you get some bad stuff, too. Well, what would bother me was, would be just the people, you know, there's people that could probably come up and are just wonderful. They're probably like, oh, my God, Ileana, we love your work. But there's probably just creeps and dicks. I mean, that you, I mean you, that you encompass sometimes. And it's like, that's the one thing where it's like, you know, I mean, it'd be weird. I think it's just, it'd be a weird thing, I mean, to deal with that. Yes. Well, plus, I mean, two complex things happen. One is, you know, which, again, I I write about in my book, is that, you know, we reached a point sort of in the early 2000s where everybody became famous. And, you know, that's what I write. It was like it was fun to be famous when no one was famous. But now everyone is famous and I feel obsolete. So it's like we're all famous. So there is no, you know, my opinions are no longer, you know, valid based on a 20-year career and being an expert on film, et cetera, et cetera. Because if someone's more famous than you, their opinions are more valid. And so, like, society just kind of went on its ear in terms of whose opinion we're listening to. We're listening to anybody's opinion based on who's the more famous person and, you know, survival of the fittest in the celebrity world. And so I think that that shifted things because I grew up in a time where, you know, you watch the Merv Griffin show and it was this wonderful mix of you'd have a professor, you'd have a starlet, you know, it was really, really wonderful. So you had this broad spectrum. Now it's just like, you know, you get a, you know, we're only getting to watch people that are filtered out for being the most famous. And I find that to be uh, not so much fun as a, as a culture. It's also as a comedian harder to make fun of because you then you find yourself in the same game as everyone else. Like, right. oh, let's make fun of, you know, traffic addict accidents. It's this, it, you know, your, your window of comedy becomes much more narrow if we also can't make fun of like, hey, did you read the book about such and such? Like, we only have one narrow window which is like let's make fun of reality stars or let's make fun of really you know kind of famous people and then on the other hand it is of course always amazing and touching when you've done films you know that reach somebody which is again why I got into show business I have a very you know strong desire uh, to have a point of view to touch people to you know to make movies that that make a difference and uh, I think that you know you have to try to you know persevere in that dream one way or another if you feel that you have a voice um, and you have to take out you know what I mean the static from from that away and I and I find that in terms of longevity of a career that's very difficult you know it's like well if I were 
a lawyer, you know, you don't go, I'm sorry, you're too old to be a lawyer right. now. You know, like, I'm sorry, you can no longer try cases or That's operate a- on people. But, you know, somehow in this business, it's like, I'm sorry, you're going to please move to the side. That is, that is so true. It's funny. You can be like the most talented person, you know, and you're right. I, I never really thought about it that way, but it's true. It's like, cause I mean, I just went to my, uh, put the scalpel down. Yeah. I, I went to my 30 year high school reunion a, a year and a half ago and it was the same thing. It's like all my friends who were lawyers, you know, they're, they're still going to be lawyers. They're going to be lawyers. Their dads were lawyers. So they're 70, you know, and it's true here. It's like, you said, oh, well, you know what? Uh, you're not good for that part. You know, you're not, it's yes. just, it happens, especially I mean, it, it's just, it's just funny. So now you're, you're a young kid. You go to New York to be an actress. Yes. And so was dun, it scary? Dun, was dun, it, was dun, it, was dun. it a scary move or? I mean, no, 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 no. I was, I, I was plotting. First of all, I spent a lot of time in New York. I, I spent substantial time living with my grandparents um, in the summers, in the vacation, in, in every vacation. They were a major, major part of my life growing up because that's that is where I wanted to be. And so it was there that you know I would watch movies and watch movies getting filmed. And all my only goals were to grow up and and um, you know and move live in New York, go to acting school. And so as soon as I was uh, old enough, I, m- I moved there and was, you know, going to acting school and literally did. I feel like, you know, I couldn't have done the very best for me is like, had I, if I could have gone back in time and lived from, you know, like 1958 to 1963 in New York. But since I couldn't do that, I think I lived in New York in the second best time, which was the early 80s to the late 80s, which was just an amazingly crazy, crazy time. I had, you know, I worked for uh, Ian Schrager and Steve Rebell. It was amazing. I had like a really, really great time. Uh, Lots of crazy roommates, lots of places all over New York. So I really feel like I experienced uh, the best of what the city had to offer then in terms of clubs and art and it was amazing and I had a great acting school experience so very blessed in that way it must have been great just because I know if you're a music I'm sure you're a music fan yes. just just for like the 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 punk movement everything like that time where it was like CBGB was jumping and I mean I remember because like, I'm a huge music fan but I remember you know, like bands like Joe Jackson and something yeah, that were just was just breaking out and the music was so different then because it was this whole new era that we were I mean we grew up yes. as classic rock kids and we and yeah. I love classic rock to this day but then when this music came out that was different and you were right in the hardcore I mean I knew grew up near Philadelphia so Philadelphia had a scene and DC yeah. had a scene but New York was like where it was the energy must have been amazing it was like everybody you know and and again I look back on it now and it's it's one of those terrible things you're like what do you mean I can no longer stay up all night right I have that. I've lost that ability. Like I want to be in bed at six thirty. But you know, we didn't. You know, in the time that I was in uh, acting school, over a you know four or five year period, plus then working at the hotel, uh, you know, for Steve Rebell, it was like you know we were going to the Palladium and uh, we were doing everything. We were like going downtown. We were walking from like clubs up back to our apartments you know we just had amazing energy we we never slept and we never apparently ate because i don't (laughs) i don't remember many meals except for like gray's papaya um and you know we just it all just seemed like one really really crazy long movie you know where you're i remember the tunnel and i remember you know going to these clubs um I remember going to, you know, Fiorucci with my cousins. That was like when I was really little. But, um, you know, that the last taste of a really, really glamorous um, New York City and the music scene. Yeah. I mean, I was like, oh, my God. And then even in the 90s, I remember, uh, you know, doing a live and, you know, um, Ethan Hawke giving me like a cassette tape of a friend of his named Lisa Loeb, you know, and we were like playing the tape. And it was... It was just like a great, really fun, really artsy, artsy time. And so when I go back there now, yes, it's great to go there and you see Broadway shows and all that. But like that, that energy that it had when I was uh, first there, 
seems to be missing a little bit. It comes back and like sense memory. It's like a grit, and it's hard. It's like that's the thing. It's, I remember I was sitting there and I was watching something, and there was a club called Odeon. Yes, and the I only remember that. only reason I remember that is a friend of mine I went to college <laughs> with sent me a postcard when I lived in San Diego of Odeon, and I framed it, and I still have it because uh, me and my girlfriend were watching TV, and I go, oh my god, look, and the postcard. But that was then back then th- that meant something, like you know, because they always had the postcards in the bathroom, and you could yeah. send them, and it was just a grit. It was a different time. Yeah. Plus, it wasn't easy to get in these places. <laughs> we, I, the only reason I got in, you know, like as they said, we would. I remember, you know, my friends like. You know, when the Palladium opened, uh, and I would, that's when I was, you know, working in this hotel for uh, Steve uh, Rebell and Ian Traeger, you know, it was like, you had to go. Like, if you didn't try to go and, like, be there that night, that was a big deal in that New York culture. And that's one of those interesting things once you leave, you know, L.A. doesn't have that culture of, like, it's important to be he, you know, I was just like with the SNL 40. I was like, that's such a New York thing. Like you just, you had to be there that night or you weren't anybody. And um, I remember, you know, when like when the Palladium, you know, reopened and like us, you know, just sneaking in. Um, it was just massively packed and crowded. But just to say that you could go there, just to say that you were, you know, there when there was another you know club i remember where you know um mick jagger showed up or you know madonna was doing like a concert or just all those things that were kind of you know fun and scary and you could sneak in and be bad and it was fun it was crazy crazy times so you're doing all this crazy stuff you're having fun you're in yes, acting school did. then you're working now when do you start acting when is what is your first gig my first gig, which uh, which I you know, which I did actually get paid for, so it does count as a gig, was working in a musical theater in Connecticut at a place called the Hartford Stage Company uh, Youth Theater, and so it was it was a paying gig, um, you know, summer. It was it was specifically for kids, but we did you know we did get paid for it. Then so I was backwards. I like got paid. Then I went to acting school. Then um, out of acting school, just doing like, you know, like everybody else, the off-Broadway thing. And um, my big break sort of came as, you know, working for uh, this publicist named Peggy Siegel. And uh, Frank Perry, this director, tapped me for a, a, a very small part in a movie called Hello Again. He asked me, you know, like I, I he said, do you want to come down and yell at Shelley Long? So I was like, uh, he said, come into my office, do a couple monologues. Of course, the sad thing is that I actually had a couple monologues ready. Uh, and and it's funny that he made me do two. Like one wasn't enough. Uh, and I literally like left my office desk. They like whisked me in a car and went downtown. And I did my little bit you know they handed me a baby it's like you know yellow shelly long i got back in the car and i got paid for it and that astonishingly silly story made its way of course around the brill building which is where all these directors and you know it was a pretty funny story like that that you know that's how i got my first job because again i wasn't trying i didn't have an agent i was like at that point i was thinking you know maybe i'll be a publicist this is like kind of a great i love this gig it seems really fun and um and so from that um after that went around, my next, you know, really even astonishingly more silly break was that I had given my resume to Martin Scorsese's uh, assistant, and I, I had taken a picture of myself. I tried to get in The Last Temptation of Christ, but I had pictures of myself taken with my head wrapped in a turban. <laughs> like, and it was... I got it, this, this was the again this is the eighties this this is the this designer Kenzo in there they used to do head wraps so I had like a a thing where I did my head wrapped up in a turban and I said look at how good I look in a turban I should be in Last Temptation of Christ shockingly nobody paid any attention to this thing but um, the resume managed to stay on uh, the person's desk and sure enough same thing I get a call. You know, when I was working for Peggy Siegel, hey, do you really have blood curdling screams? Yes, I do. So I went down and I did, du- I dubbed uh, some screams for The Last Temptation of Christ. And in the process of doing that, um, 
they asked me, uh, Marty asked me if I wanted to do some background voices, you know. As I always say, like lots of, you know, kill the Romans, right. <laughs> uh, uh, you know, things like that. And uh, I, you know, he liked my voice, is what he said. And uh, so sl- I slowly I started doing a line here, line there. And I ended up getting a, you know, d- basically dubbing someone's part in the film. And so through the process of that, that actually led really to my first Job, which was I auditioned for New York Stories to play uh, Rosanna Arquette's friend, and basically, you know, again, like after that, knock wood, I've never that was that really led to kind of, you know, working, and that was probably um, I think that's like eighty seven, and yeah. I've pretty much worked since then. Now, how did how did you know that you had a great blood curling? I mean, it's not it's like my brother, my older brother could wiggle his ears. Okay, he could do that, yes. and I would try. I couldn't do it. But how did you know? Because that's like it's something that you you can't really hone the craft because you're going to scare the crap out of people. No, I knew this absolutely, and and again, you know, when you're starting out, it. it I mean, I don't know what people do now, but in those days, you know, you're trying to pad your resume because you've done nothing, so you try to think of. And my thought thought was, well, I'll be funny, you know, I'll catch someone's eye. I'll say that I know how to milk a goat, which I did, and I have a great blood curdling scream and I have great legs and so I'm like these are my three assets you know <laughs> maybe somebody <laughs> incidentally the turban photo which no I sent out a thousand times one man called me in for an audition the name of that man was Milos Forman <laughs> so I had a I had a very intense horrible because it was a terrible actor but I auditioned for his film Valmont and I remember I was just absolutely dreadful. But he had literally called me in because somehow he got a hold of that picture. I don't know. So anyway, so a good picture helps. Um, but no, I had done um, I had done a play when I was in acting school. And I had a very, very small part in the play. The play was called Natural Affection, if anybody wants to look it up, by William Inge. And the end of the play, this girl, uh, it was a really, William Inge has written a lot of great plays and unfortunately in my opinion this was not one of them it it didn't last long on Broadway but the end of the play is this girl wanders on she just happens to be in the wrong place at the wrong time and she's stabbed to death and um, it was you know it was was nothing to the part and uh, I was really really into movies and Hitchcock and stuff like that so I convinced the director I said wouldn't it be cool why don't you let me do this thing where you know, because they were saying, how are we going to do this thing? We can't do stage blood, blah, blah, blah. And so I said, well, we'll do the Hitchcock thing. You know, we'll, he'll knock me down behind the couch and, you know, you'll never see anything, but I'll be screaming. And then so we, we set up this elaborate, like, bucket with blood in it. And I'm behind the, ha- the, the couch and all you see are my legs thrashing about. And then he would just have the knife that would come up and it would have blood on the knife because right. <laughs> it was behind the curtain. It was, it was like weirdly genius. And I remember the first night that we did it, literally, it was like the audience went insane. Like they went insane. Everybody was the director. We were all like so happy. We, we couldn't believe that this like two-bit vaudeville gag was like but people were so freaked out and i was so into it too i refused to do the curtain call because i was like no i'm dead you know i am not going to appear at the (laughs) that's how dedicated i was but anyway through the process of doing this uh my director at the time said you know you have a really disturbing scream it's like the worst not like a B-movie scream, you have this kind of like gurgling. And I said, well, because I was trying to make it sound like I was, you know, gruesomely being hacked to death. So he uh, he said, you have this great scream. So I thought I would put it on my resume. And sure enough, it worked. And when I went down to to scream for Marty and Thelma Schoonmaker and the producers of, you know, they I kept saying, like, they were all laughing just what I write about like they didn't th- you know they thought it was like okay let's hear this thing and I said no I'm serious it's like really bad like turn <laughs> turn your mics down and, you know nobody took me seriously so I um I did my scream which I will not do here 
Like, yeah, because it's just... <laughs> well, the funny thing is, of course, and it's interesting because my wonderful boss, Peggy Siegel, just, I recently did an interview with Page Six, and they reprinted this story, and it's so bizarre, like, all these years have gone by that people have forgotten about this but when i was first starting out if i was like on the rosie o'donnell show they'd be like come on we let's hear the scream <laughs> okay i do not want to be the girl with the horrible the horrible scream but it was uh it, it was good i have not thankfully i have never had to use it in a pretty long time so. well you know it's great i mean that, that you were the girl with the scream and it's led to this great career because i gotta tell you first of all two two of your projects are two of my one top ten movies and yes. one of my top ten TV shows, Goodfellas, of course, is my top. But yes. the one, the one show you're in that I actually loved was Action. Yes, and, thank you. And that was one of those shows. And people, it's it lasted for like eight or nine episodes. Or, or well, we or did no. thirteen. One was deemed so controversial. It's I don't think it's ever been seen. I think that was the one we did with Ice Cube. Uh, I don't know where that one is, but. What sucked about it was, it was, it was, and now I think that show would do great because back then they said, oh, it's too LA, which always cracks me up. It's like, you know, I wasn't, I mean, everyone's like, you know, because it's yeah. too LA. But that was one of those shows, and people, it's on Hulu, I believe. And yeah. uh, you have to go watch it because it's with Ileana, uh, Jay Moore, and Buddy Hackett. I mean, Buddy Hackett. One, one of the, Genius. One of Genius. the weirdest casts ever. And, yeah. and, now, and what was it like working with Buddy Hackett? Because I, I remember as a kid watching him on The Tonight Show. Yes. And my mom, would, and I'd stay up when he was on and my mom would I mean die because he would tell those jokes and just and, and yeah. it was amazing I mean what was it like working every day with him it was surreal and and you know again I, I you know I write about this in my book and, and you know it's when we when I you know when I got cast in action and it was written by Chris Thompson brilliant writer and brilliant showrunner um you know, I love Jay Moore. We had worked together on Picture Perfect, so I had a relationship with him. I'm just a huge, huge fan of stand-up comedians. You know, it's Don Rickles, Jerry Lewis, Buddy Hackett. So um, it was incredible. The pilot was shot by Ted Demi, who's a genius. You know, we were shooting the show 4 o'clock in the morning, you know, on Hollywood Boulevard. The thing where I'm, like, taped to the side of the car i mean it was just really you know keanu reeves is in it everybody was in it joel silver was a producer you know we were like i was like well this show is going to be on for you know 10 years i mean it was you know we really thought it was something brilliant and i think that everybody we you know nobody was phoning it in like we were really trying i think that it was a comedy but i think at the heart of it it was a drama in terms of all the actors like we were portraying these parts like with really really serious relationships you know i mean my character this you know she's a former uh, child star who becomes a hooker who's now uh, a hollywood executive i mean my god what a great great part but so i think that underneath all of our characters what jay has what i have what buddy hackett has is a great sense of pathos and so maybe that's why it made it you know it was funny but it had those elements of you know of of being dark um, and I, I don't know, you know, people loved it. It was critically acclaimed. We loved doing it. And, you know, working with Buddy was amazing. You know, there were the days where I'd have to I'd say, Buddy, you understand I'm not a cocktail waitress. Like we are, <laughs> this is not, uh, we're not at the sands. Okay. Please remove your hands. Um, but you know, like he's Buddy Hackett. He was amazing. I mean, he was amazing as, you know, he and Jay, of course, had a very, very tight relationship um i'm i appreciated it when i was working on the show i mourn it even more now just because the ability to work with greats like that is few and far between you know and the wisdom that they give you is uh is unbelievable you know i think of i mean i remember when the show ended and it was really you know sad like we were really sad everybody was very very sad about it and i remember buddy you know kind of crying and saying oh this is probably going to be my last job and i said oh buddy don't think and it and it was you know like it was it's the end of an era and so when i look at these comedians you know and their place in society 
I, I have such tremendous respect for comedians because they, you know, they make fun of our culture and their window. You know, we can see them on YouTube um, and you can see Buddy Hackett on YouTube. And you can see the everything they brought to the culture. But you can also see their, you know, where they come from and the whole long, long line of what they bring and which comedians came before them and the importance of the Catskills and where they worked and the Sands and all and all that fun kind of glamorous stuff just doesn't really just doesn't really exist anymore. Well, it's true because I, I did I did stand up on the road from like eighty eight to ninety five, and I remember going to the Catskills and you think you know because we were <laughs> Philly comics you're like oh yeah the Catskills and it was just so funny it was a different time I remember playing at this place in the Poconos and they're like okay here's the deal you're you're gonna, you're gonna get paid this you're gonna yeah. do thirty five minutes after a band and it's a kids resort and you're going holy crap it's a kids resort I'm following a band playing you know cool in the gang yeah and then you sit there and then the band stops and all of a sudden this stage like rolls out like a little podium and you're on it and I'm yeah. thinking it was scary but for these guys that's what they were built on and that back then I mean I mean it was like there was a place called the Caesars Resorts so they had them all across the Poconos right but that used to be like back in the day and then that was what was cool about it because you stayed into the little your hotel room they put you up had like a little yeah. heart shaped thing and it was just different just think that back then I mean this was like one night but back then it would be every night in the Poconos people families would go see these and there'd be adult ones too I mean yes. would come to see it and it was just a certain time that must have been so cool to be a part of well I the I mean for me too what the show represents and it's you know it's wonderful that people remember it and I remember it um, is that you know we shot it it was 99 through 2000 um, and there was you know people didn't we didn't have a lot of notes you know we were just like you said Ted Demi did the did the pilot uh, Don Roos was one of the writers we had you know Will Forte was one of the writers like people were literally just trying to hit it out of the park they were trying to write the best show that they could possibly write and I was you know we worked really hard on the scenes like we just everybody was pedal to the metal in terms of making it a great show and critically we were really really acclaimed and it was you know it was hard like it felt a little bit like the rug got pulled out from us in terms of not giving us the support that you know to to find our footing and, you know also at the time that I remember uh, I think it was the senator Lieberman like came out against us and they said the show was you know filthy and See, that's always so irritating. It's like, just let the people watch it who want to watch it. Yeah. And I was pissed. I was so pissed because in the last episode when he dies, I kept saying, he's going to come back. I'm one of those things you think, oh, the guy goes to steal his watch. And I'm going, oh, no, no. He's going to put his arm up. It, was, it wasn't it was really a heart attack. And then I was like, when they ran the credits, I'm like, shit, this is, there's not even a chance for this show to come back now because yes. he's dead. I know. We all, I think I go back to, you know. I'd probably go back to being a prostitute or I leave or something like that. And then Buddy, I mean, but it was so sad. I remember shooting that scene, you know, and with Buddy and I was crying and he was crying, you know, like it was, it did signal for me the end, a little bit of an end of a trajectory of like independent film and doing amazing characters and what I thought my career was going to be and always being really ballsy and always having great things. And there was a shift, as I said, like after when that show got canceled, there was kind of a shift uh, in terms of what started, what shows, you know, they started to make. Now we're shifting back towards that where characters can be dark and they can do all these dark things. But maybe, you know, everybody says, oh, it was too ahead of its time. And maybe that is the, maybe that is the case. But we really, um, you know, it was innovative in the sense we were the first show that ever had a premiere for itself. Um, I mean, I remember going into, you know, New York and, and having just crazy celebratory time over the show i remember buddy hackett because you know he didn't he famously did not like people to smoke and so i remember there was somebody at our party some manager who stupidly started to smoke and i remember you know buddy like taking him by the throat and like like <laughs> lifting him up you know and i was like that's and i look back on it now you know forgive me fondly because it's like yeah you won't see those 
He wants to see those fun days again of like, you know, oh, look, there's so-and-so dancing topless. And right. You know, it's like <laughs> everything is, it's just, it's just not quite as much fun. It was like the artists got to be a little crazy behind the scenes and nobody cared because we were really doing a quality show. And I feel like everybody's a little tamped down now in terms of their creativity and their notes. And it represented to me like, you know. Were there a lot of crazy things going on behind the scenes? Yes, there certainly were. But you had people that were really, really f- trying to find their way as artists and trying to do something that was really good. And uh, it's a shame we weren't protected more. And it seems, you know, and I, these days it's sort of like you have to prove yourself. Then you get a chance to, like, go crazy and do a show that's really dark. But I, I, don't, uh, I don't like the idea that, again, like, we just... Um, you know, we get rid of our artists because, like, we didn't think the ratings were so high. And we forget the idea that, like, you know, what Chris Thompson wrote and delivered and what Jay and I and Buddy Hackett were, were trying to do, you know. I want to talk more about some of the other projects. But I want to talk sure. about uh, what we talked about before, the, the living room, that, that, that project. The living room show, yes. Now, how did that come about? And just because, I mean, and it's just, and it's funny, you're one of those people that when I look at your career, you know, from the Goodfellows or, you know, Grace of the Heart or, you know, to die for, you've always had like cool, I mean, you've, you've always kept sort of that artist edge. Like, you've always picked projects that are, uh, I'd say, but cool. Like, even Larry Sanders show you were on, it was, that was a hip show. I mean, oh, that was great. Changed so, my life. Wonderful. So how did it change? Did Larry Sanders show change your life? Absolutely, because, you know, I, we're, about to get into this but um yes when i first started out i you know i dabbled in doing a little bit of stand-up and i was in sketch comedy and uh seriously thought about going in that way but it's you know just the stand-up life i find just you know it's just it's not for me and but i'd really gotten away from writing quite a bit i just was you know acting and just come off of it you know action and all of that and uh when i when i met um gary shandling he wanted me to be on the show. I mean, first of all, I was shocked. It was like, you're kidding, right? I thought it was a joke, <laughs> you know, when he approached me. Right. Uh, and uh, I remember one famous story was I met him. I had been trying to get on this show. I had an agent, and I was like, I got want to be on this show. And I ran into Gary Shandling at Carrie Fisher's house at a party. And he came up to me, and he said, you know, I want you to be on my show. I want you to play this you know, pivotal role being my girlfriend. And, you know, and I was like, this is a joke, right? Like you've heard <laughs> about me. He just looked at me like that. I was like, no, I don't know what you're talking about. So he said, I'm going to, who's your agent? I'm going to contact. You. Oh my God. The next day I called my agent. I was like, so excited. I was like, you're not going to believe this. It was like, first of all, I get invited to Carrie Fisher's house. That's big enough. Um, but I tell him about the conversation. He goes, you know, Leanna, we're in Hollywood, okay? Just because Gary Shandling says something, it's like, it's not going to happen. You're so naive. And I actually believed him. I was like, wow, that's, yeah, what an idiot I am. How could I actually believe that I'm, and sure enough, I get this call a few weeks later from the casting person, uh, Mark Hirschfeld, who says to me, we've been trying to get a hold of you. Gary Shandling wants you to be on his show. So I was like, oh, okay. I have low self-esteem, I guess. Um, but anyway, so he, the way we did the show and Judd Apatow, a young Judd Apatow, that, those were, this was his first directing gig that he ever did was directing uh, me and Gary Shandling in bed. Um, we, uh, Gary brought me, he, he said, I want you to just come and watch the show and just watch how we do it. And he said, I want to just meet with you. And I met with him and Judd Apatow and John Stewart, who was writing the show. And he said, I want you to tell me every funny thing that ever happened to you. And that's, I just thought, what an interesting way of working. And so we, we just, I came at literally every day I watched them shoot scenes and we just talked and talked and talked and Judd and uh, John Stewart took notes based on things that I was saying and so when the script came back I was like wow these are all like things that have happened to me and you've put them in a writing form and uh, it was the first time I, I kind of realized like wow well maybe 
you know, maybe, um, you know, maybe I should try some writing. <laughs> like right. this is, you know, they had used for, for an example, they used, I had this experience the first time I was on David Letterman's show, I had followed, uh, <laughs> I had followed, uh, Jacques Cousteau and he hadn't done very well. And, uh, <laughs> And so I was like, all I cared about was being on David Letterman's show. But like everybody freaked out. Suddenly they were like, Dave's not happy. It's Jacques Cousteau bombed. Let's start going over your material. And they were like coaching me on the story. They were like, Dave's going to say this. And then you're going to say. And, and I was like, okay, guys, you're like, you're freaking me out. Like, I, I'm going to be funny. It's going to be okay. But that over coaching experience like that led to to an element that was on you know that was on uh, Gary Shandling so all of those elements of using my real life for comedy started to bring me back into that area of 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 writing and then you know and eventually you know after I left that show that's when I wrote my first you know pilot which is called Ileana Rama and and I started working for IKEA and wrote Easy to Assemble so I had never Believe it or not, like I always wrote jokes and I was I did stand up, but they were observational jokes. I never used my own life for humor. I just was like, oh, I just thought I'd talk fast. And, you know, but but Gary gave me this ability to actually and it sounds, you know, simplistic, but to actually believe that I had a voice, that I had something to say other than being other than being uh, an actress interpreting someone else's words. And I realized like how many times in how many movies I had actually said, well, you know, I don't really, can I just change this word or this word? Well, in fact, let me change this whole sentence. Right. You know, and so I was like, so much of, of that I just thought was acting. But when I did his show, and so many crazy things, you know, so many things had made it into the script uh, that that I it, it put me into that direction of, of of feeling like a little little bit of confidence that maybe I could do some writing too. And so that now that's up to your new show. Well, yes, in terms of the living room show, um, cut to you know, I'm friends with a lot of people who are comedians, wonderful comedians like Tom Arnold and. Kevin Nealon and uh, you know they would always say to me like oh you should you know go out and do some stand up or whatever and it's always hard because you know I'm I'm known as an actress so it it becomes like a little tough to be like and now I'm going to tell you some funny things you know? right because people like, know you as a certain yeah. thing and they're not like wait a second it's not like you were a comic who became an act you know an actor now it's like well wait a second yeah she's just taking and then of course big, all the young punk comics be like she's just taking stage time because you know and then it's like shut up punk comics I know I know all those or I'm like trying to set up a joke and they're like what's Robert De Niro like. <laughs> I'll get that. Can I finish my joke now? But um, but I enjoy that. But I had said, you know, I said, geez, I, I'd like to be funny in someone's living room. I wouldn't want to be funny on the, you know, in in a stage. And so that led to me working with this, uh, this comedian named uh, Sarah Sweet. So we said, uh, I said, well, why don't we do that? Why don't we find like, we'll find living rooms to, you know, to just to see, well, as an experiment, if this could possibly work. So the idea is we'd find a complete stranger's living room, offer them a variety show in their living room with us hosting and doing stand-up. And in an exchange, we would do the show for free. And in exchange, they would have to feed us. And afterwards, there'd be like a kind of a, a fun get-together. I also thought it would be like a good way to meet a boyfriend that never happened. But I'm always in the back of my head, I'm like, and I could maybe meet a nice guy. But um, instead, we did the first show and it was wildly popular. And people came up to us afterwards and were like, please do a show at our living room. How did you find the first show? How the first place you did it? The very first show came from uh, like a friend of Sarah's. I did not know the woman. It was it was a woman. It was like a, a, a single woman woman uh i believe she may have been a makeup artist i don't, I don't even know i uh i honestly i don't remember her name and wouldn't say her name but anyway she was like sarah didn't even know her that well she was like a friend of a friend and we went and did it in her living room and people were just jammed in and as i said after the show we got all these numbers about will you do one at our house and then the next, you know, so we did. And then by the third show, 
we did it at a producer's house in the Hollywood Hills. And it was shot, like, there was actually performers in the show. And part of the, the idea is that the producer, we, we go scout the house. We decide, like, the room uh, that we're going to do it in. We, you know, it's better if they have a piano, but we do have keyboards. Like, we bring the mics. In the very beginning, we were, like, literally, it, the show was costing us money because we would have to rent, you know, we would rent the chairs. We broom out their living room. We get there at 3 o'clock on the day. We broom out their place. We put in plastic chairs. Uh, they're doing the food. We set up the mics. You know, we have a little rug that creates our little stage. And, you know, but by the third show, we performed at this producer's house. And it was crazy. I mean, we had, like, really famous people sitting out there. And we thought, okay, this thing is it's getting, like, it's getting bigger and bigger and bigger. And then uh, the New York Times, we uh, did a story on us. Because unbeknownst to us, just, like, one of the shows we did, there was a writer there from the Times. And so she did a story on us for the New- in the New York Times. And then after that, it became, like, as I said, one step, like, even, you know, even bigger. Um, but we have, you know, we have magicians, we have stand-up comedians, we have singers, um, and it's, and again, the homeowner, it's kind of this amazing thing because I, we do not know the homeowners. Like they usually contact us because they've been in the audience and they come up to us and they say, well, you do one at my house. And then we scout out the house and we just decide whether or not, you know, they would be a good house. One, like we, you know, um, my partner, Sarah, she got contacted on Facebook and I remember going up to the house and it was this huge mansion with a gate. And I was like, are you sure? Like, who are these? Are we ever going to come back? Does anybody know we're here? Like, this is, is this safe? Um, and some of the performers have said that too. Like, some of the houses we've been performing in, you know, these like gigantic mansions are like, you know, I could just pick something up and put it on my purse. It's this wonderful mix that. They agree to do the show. We talk to them. We kind of ask them, like, well, who who do you think is funny? Like, what kind of music you like? I mean, one instance we did hear from someone that they were like, you know, a big, you know, Lisa Loeb fan. So, like, when we actually had Lisa Loeb in this person's living room, I mean, they were freaking out. And it's completely secret. So we, the performers text me when they're there. We have a green room that's sequestered off. And so the homeowners know that, like, they can't. You know, it's sort of a trust thing. Like they can't. We get the all the performers come and do their sound check at around five, and then we hide them. And so by seven, all the celebrities, everybody is out of sight. Okay. So that when we come on and host the show, it's one celebrity after after another. You know, doing a sketch or telling a funny story or. Who are some of the celebrities you've had so far? We've had um, Lisa Loeb, uh, Kate Flannery, Jane Lynch, um, Justin Willman, who's a, a magician, uh, Lorraine Newman. I mean, on and on. I know I'm forgetting Jimmy Pardo, Wendy Liebman. Um, I'm trying to think. Again, Kelly Carlin. God, we've had so many people. Roger Bart. Uh, Sharon Lawrence. I mean, on and on and on. We've had like a lot of, oh, Jennifer Tilly. Uh, we got some people coming up that I can't you mention. can't say. I can't say in now, case the. How long does the show run for? The show runs for an hour. Okay, now it's recorded. Yes. It's, uh, and then can people see this anywhere? Uh, you can see it. Well, again, we're if somebody wants to come support us, we were, we, uh, we lost our camera guy this month because oh. we we everything is done for free and he you can see the show actually on youtube it's called the living room show uh you can see one of our past shows because what we were doing is live streaming it for everybody to see but unfortunately uh george got a job <laughs> this month so he's unable <laughs> yeah so no cameras this month sorry so that's sort of how we are we're we're once i if i ever get my act together we'll do like a crowdfunding thing for it because it's really Really an amazing you should. Thing. It's a great idea because it's like anything, you know. It's like for me, it's just because I interview people all the time. You know, we, I'm used to it. I'm used yeah. to it. But like my girlfriend, when you know she would, when she, she, we were, I was by coastal for a while. When she would come out, if I would always try to put a guest on, like she loves Seinfeld, so I uh-huh. got three Seinfeld writers on or whatever, and she would just sit there and just be in awe. And people who 
aren't involved really in the industry. It's yes. like like the person you say, people often lease a Lowe's in their house. You could be a billionaire, but if you don't if you're like a lawyer and you don't have contact with people and then all of a sudden this person's in your house, it's it's such a great feeling for them. Right. Plus there is an element of it. Um, you know, like last month we did Jane Lynch's house. We were at Jane Lynch's house, but nobody that was invited knew that it was Jane Lynch's house. So there is this element which the New York Times writer captured very nicely, which is you are going to someone's house to see something that you do not know what you are going to see. You are sitting in a stranger's living room with a bunch of other strangers because we get, I mean, we actually have to turn people away. We get like, you know, between 100, 120, sometimes 150 people jammed in a living room, sit, standing in the kitchen, standing sometimes on the stairway. And so there's this great sense of anticipation because you literally don't know what you're going to see. The only you know that, you know, you know that me and my partner, Sarah, are hosting it, but that's all you really know. And uh, so, you know, when we come out and, you know, we kind of do some stand up and then we, you know, invite on the first singer, uh, it's always, you know, surprise and delight ensues because you literally don't know what to expect. And then the genius thing is that after the show and what's been amazing is like, you know, we started out in the beginning with like, you know, pasta and stuff. But now it is such a destination event for people that it's usually a huge shindig afterwards so there's like a big party and there's wine and you get to meet people there's a there's an incredibly nice uh uh you know social element to it there's been actors you know again that have gotten auditions based on like producers seeing them you know like we we did a show at one of the producers of um homeland and you know, one of the actors ended up getting like an audition from the from the person. So it's kind of a surreal thing. See, that's so cool. That's a squad. Cool. Now I have to go check it out. I have to go into the YouTube and check it out just because. Yes. I love stuff. I love different stuff like that because it's it's take it's changing. As you said, it's an artistic way to just change something. I mean, it, it's not like. People go, oh, yeah, a house party. But this is just like fun. It's like, I mean, and most times you think if I'm going to a party and you think of someone, like if you go and someone's, I remember when you were younger, like someone, oh, yeah, you know, our son's a magician and the kids right, right. sucked. And you watch right. it, like, you know, even like you're 13, you're like, Jesus Christ, I'm watching a six year old kid do magic. But yeah. this is just fun. Cause, and what's best is people don't know what they're going to see. And it's just, you, there's, I said, celebrities. I mean, if I was just hanging out and I said, oh, some, this party thing, and then all of a sudden Wendy came on, I'd be like, oh my God, I've seen her on TV 50 times. You know, it's just right. you get people who are legit acts, which is Yeah, cool. and they're not in a, you know, it's not, you know, not that there's anything wrong with clubs, but for me personally, you know, I just like the theatrical element of it a little bit more. And uh, for me, you know, again, it's this idea of watching um, also the performers get to be, they are so scared back stage (laughs) they're like the idea that they have committed to this thing too and suddenly they're peeking out and they're seeing like famous people and clients or you know it becomes it's really really interesting i've had lots of people you know who've agreed to do the show and now i'm thinking of more names greg grunberg stephen uh uh, weber scott grimes you know they're like why did i agree to do this they're so nervous backstage because they're going to be doing like a little comedy skit in someone's living room you know um and i'm kind of like putting there's a part of me that likes putting people through their their paces and again remembering you know why we're in this business and we're in this business to entertain and to you know communicate with the audience and i there's for me there's just something really pure about just simply doing literally doing the show for free people i'm i'm i mean I would love to at some point bring a sponsor on and have us, you know, sponsor us out there. If anyone's out there and wants to sponsor us. But again, the idea that it is a communion, that they we do the show for free because we love to perform. And their gratitude is that they're going to feed us in return and share wine and break bread to me is uh, is what I'm really after. Because it's like we've never done a show that is not like... Uh, an amazing success we have a time ticking clock element because it's always like there's always i mean we agree like we you know last month 
the reason Jane Lynch came to the rescue is we were going to be doing the show at some guy's house. And then, you know, bless his heart, he ended up having like a heart a heart issue. And he had to go to the hospital. And we're scrambling trying to find another house. And well, there's always these kind of crazy issues, you know, when we're in someone's home and we're navigating very carefully. Can we move your television? Right. Can we take this picture <laughs> off? And at the end of it. You know, it's this idea that's very sweet of bringing performers together with their audience in a very, uh, you know, very pure way that I think is is really special and reminds everybody why we love to perform. And, and you know, it's like if you don't think we need a reminder of that, we do because it's everything is, you know, any everybody is so wants to take the joy out of things I find these days so it's like if you can find if you can find that level of the joy of performing and the silliness of it and like yeah I am like a nine-year-old in someone's living room I get I'm the biggest you know I'm so proud of like just standing back and like I watch the performers like you know getting ready to do a performance in a complete stranger's living room with strangers and the dedication that they're putting into like their magic act and making sure something goes well and to me like that's the beauty of performers and artists you know it's like it doesn't matter you know where they are i wish we would call upon artists more to utilize them you know because i i think they're great bridgers of things you know well, I got to tell you that that flew by. We're almost done. See okay. that? These right. hours fly. You know, I know. And so now the book. When's the book going to come out? The, or? the book is going to come out in November. It's called uh, "I Blame Dennis Hopper" and uh, another person who really influenced my life. And it's all there's stories. Um, you know, not it's not really a career book. It's it's really a book about my love of movies, about how movies and movie stars have really had a profound influence on my life. So every chapter is kind of you know from Dennis Hopper to Liza Minnelli to Ethan Hawke to Marlon Brando, all the people that I've, you know, that I've worked with that have really kind of changed my, you know, changed my life. Um, it's been really fun. It's been a blast working on it, you know. It's, it must be cool just to sit there and actually write these stories and just recollect them because it's been a great career. So you must sit there and go, wow, this is just cool because it's like you're encapsulating your life in a book. Yeah, I mean, again, it's, it's hopefully it's, and I, I do a lot of writing for Turner Classic Movies, and as I said, I, inter I interview people for them for the film festival and for the cruise, and uh, that's been part of my great joy, is bringing people, if it's like, you know, James Woods or Richard Dreyfuss or, or Jerry Lewis, a slew of other people that I've worked with, and so I have an impre impression of them based on working with them i am their biggest cheerleader and so i think it's really important to put a spotlight on you know an actor and for instance you know with with richard dreyfus you know that was one of the th things it was like he is a classic film star right. like we need to start thinking of the 70s as like exactly classic you know classic film stars and so i write about him in a sense that i think that again as i said the perspective is that i've been able to work with him and then also interview him and then and hopefully uh, and then also highlight his career. And that was one of the things he said when I wrote about him for TCM is that um, he'd never seen a piece where somebody had never interviewed him, that it was I literally wrote the piece based on my childhood recollections okay. of watching him in the film, how I felt as a child watching him and then how I grew up. And ended up working with him and his contributions, you know, to to film. And I I like to think of every single person that I work with in that way is that hopefully the gift that I have is that uh, more than just I'm an actress working with them. I hope that I have the ability to work with them as an actress and be a, be a good actor, but also highlight their, you know, highlight their career and what they mean uh, in terms of you know, film history, because I feel that every actor, every director, etc., has a place in history. I wonder what mine will be. It'll be great. I want to thank you so much. Now, <laughs> now you. you're on Twitter. Yes, I am. At uh, Ileana Rama. Please follow me for occasionally funny things or movie updates. So follow follow her and uh, also follow me on Twitter at Cooper Talk. That's at Cooper Talk. I tweet a lot. Also go to my website, coopertalk.net. I have over 340 episodes up there. You can send me an email at cooper at coopertalk.net. 
net. And also go to my new website, Stop the Salt. It's my cookbook about low-sodium cooking. You know, I went through my health problems, so that's out. It's 120 pages of just basic, easy recipes for one that have don't have salt in them, so you can eat healthy, be healthy. You can also find it on Amazon. Just type in Steve Cooper, Stop the Salt. Uh, this Friday, I don't perform much. I'll be at the Capri in Eagle Rock. It's a 9 o'clock show. It's a free show. Come on out. I'll be doing probably eight minutes. I think I'll tell the story about when I was in the hospital. I don't know. I'm not going to really do my stand-up act anymore because I'm just tired of it. That's why I don't get on stage, so I'm doing more of the story stuff. I'll either do that story I'll do when I get paid $35 an hour to be dressed like a piece of corn and give out soup. So it'll be good. So do that. Follow Ileana on uh, Twitter. Follow me on Twitter at Cooper Talk. And um, yeah, that's about it. I have nothing else to say. Get Stop the Salt. Get the book. I will sign it if you buy it from my website. And that sounds cocky, but it's not. So remember, I'm Steve Cooper. I'm only as hip as my guest. Don't forget, drink your water, eat your vegetables, take your vitamins. You guys have a great weekend and be careful out there.